uh, probably be about right here. And I will talk roughly this loud and stare into Josh's eyes longingly. Uh, that's creepy. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Ben Orenstein, and I am broadcasting to you deep from the heart of the ThoughtBot office in Boston. It is Friday, July 13th, and I am sitting here talking with Josh Clayton. How's it going, Josh? Great, how are you? I'm good. So, uh, what do you do here at ThoughtBot? I'm a developer at ThoughtBot. I've been here almost three years now. It'll be three years in August. Pretty long time. So how did you get started with Rails? Like, what was your first Rails gig? Uh, my first Rails gig was actually um, started in 2006, and I was in the Marines, and we were getting ready to deploy to Fallujah, Iraq, and I decided I wanted to write a blog for my parents and relatives to be able to sign in and read posts, uh, but I wanted password protected because I wanted my address. Was this breaking uh, classified information? No, situation? no, nothing like that. It was just, you know, it's it's a lot easier to write a blog than it is to, say, mail letters to a bunch of different people because, right. you know, it takes two or three weeks for letters to get back to the So States. Rails is very bad at writing blogs, right? It's, so yeah, it's horrible. That's a pretty bad first app. Yeah. yeah. Uh, th- that led into another app where we tracked a bunch of census data for all the individuals we were interacting with when we were in Iraq. Okay. Uh, so that was the first actual app that I built. Uh, so what what kind of stuff was in that app? I uh, in, uh, yeah, information about uh, the people that we were interacting with, uh, significant events. Uh, so uh, you know what happened, where they happened, and so on. Nothing classified or anything crazy, mm-hmm. um, but it was just a way for us to be able to aggregate all this information because before it was being stored in Excel. And it was horrible. Uh, okay. you know, so we wanted to be able to list it and view it in an easier manner. So I went through, I built it. Uh, I learned Rails and Ruby at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have access to the internet. So I had bought uh, the, the pickaxe and dug through Rails' documentation. Yeah. And that was basically how I learned Ruby and Rails. That's awesome. Um, so when I started, I wasn't using migrations. Uh, the code was horrible. Of course. Uh, you know, but it, it worked and, you know, we, uh, we got stuff done with it. So were you just basically source diving when you needed to find stuff out? Yep, exactly. Man, I can't imagine programming without Google. Yeah, it's it was it was really interesting. A lot of times what I would do is I would bookmark pages or save the pages so I would be able to refer to them when I when I didn't have internet access because there were times where I would be able to hop on the internet for 10 15 minutes and I would just go to pages, download them to my computer and then be able to refer to them later. Yeah. So hardcore programming. It was it was intense, yeah. Yeah. So we have a tool written here called Factory Girl. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what that does? Sure. So Factory Girl is a Ruby gem, and the goal of it, and goal of it is to replace uh, Rails fixtures. So fixtures for a long time were the de facto standard for setting up data in Rails apps for testing your applications, right? Mm-hmm. It was data stored in YAML, uh, and it was a lot of times difficult to maintain. There wasn't a, really a good way to go through and change any of the information without affecting a slew of other tests. So what we ended up doing was writing this gem called Factory Girl. And Factory Girl is, uh, it provides a Ruby DSL syntax for defining factories. So basically like a user or a post. And these are models in your system. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It could actually be any object. Okay. So it doesn't have to be uh, active record models or anything like that. It can be any object in your system. Okay. And what it allows you to do then is say, you know, I have this post. I have these attributes, so title, uh, when it was published, 
uh, maybe the author. Mm -hmm. There can be associations, references to other factories. Mm -hmm. Um, Callbacks, traits, which is basically a way to mix in a handful of different behavior into one uh, record that you're trying to create. Okay. So So it's a tool. We're we're just creating test data. Exactly. You need to check that models work well together, and so you you need to build two or three things that are going to talk to each other, and Factory Girl handles that for you. Yep, and it's, again, written in Ruby instead of YAML, like fixtures. Right. Um, I think they both support uh, references to related data, but you can override uh, attributes on the fly mm-hmm. when you call the factory. And, again, there's a handful of other, you know, benefits to it as yeah. well. Yeah, so um, these days you are uh, the maintainer of Factory Girl? Yep. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's, it's pretty fair to say. I picked it up, uh, let's see, when was that? Cape Code last year, so yeah. almost a full year. When I picked it up, it was pre 2.0, and I helped get it to 2.0 during Cape Code. Okay. And then since then... Was 2.0 the new syntax? 2.0 was the new syntax, yes. Okay. Where it got sort were, of more DSL-y almost? Yep. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I've been hammering on it. We've had uh, a handful of awesome contributors add things like traits that we've been tweaking. Um, mm-hmm. Attribute order doesn't matter anymore, so you can uh, refer to various attributes from other attributes, and everything evaluates you know, fine, which I don't think any other factory gem does. Yeah, right that sounds like one of those features that was really simple to describe and turns out to be really hard to do. It, it was horrible. Basically, we used metaprogramming all the way down to go and de- define. Uh, basically, all the attributes get turned into procs, and we define methods dynamically so that you can refer to other methods from each block, and it'll all invoke correctly. Yikes. So you sort of, do you evaluate it like sort of all at once then, or how does, how can I refer back to an attribute, or forward to an attribute, I guess? Just by its name. Okay. So imagine every single block declaration for all of your attributes on a factory. Mm -hmm. If you have a block and you execute a method, you just refer to that method, right? So when you define all the attributes, you evaluate or they compile down to blocks, right? Mm. We define all of these attributes on a, a brand new class. Uh-huh. Store that class with the factory. Okay. So the factory girl representation of a factory. Yep. And then when we go through and we instantiate the object and assign all the the actual all active the, record object. Yep. Yep. We'll go through and invoke methods we'll call every single method from this separate dynamically generated class gotcha so it will be self-aware and it's also aware of the instance that you're um assigning to right so if you have uh like a phone number or something on a user and you want to refer to that method from your factory definition you can do that even if you don't declare that method on the factory itself. Interesting. Huh. That's cool. That's some that's some spooky metaprogramming stuff going on there. It's it's intense, yes. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, so what was the pain point that Factory Girl was meant to solve? Uh, basically, you're, de- you're dealing with a lot of associated records. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with uh, information that's changing. And you want to be able to build these data sets for... Hopefully, you're for your integration tests, right? Mm-hmm. You want to build all this data, but you don't want to manage it in YAML. You want it to be dynamic. You want to be able to refer to 
you know, other factories. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to override values. And factory allows you to do that. There's overrides. There's associations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recently added traits. I guess that's been around for six or eight months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and traits are awesome. Uh, so, so there's a lot of different ways to set up your data easily and effectively. So you can deal more with concepts and less with the actual columns in the database. Right. So we're basically building fixture data in a convenient way. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, there's effectively global coupling here, right? When you have a factory, when you have Factory Girl, you all your tests are depending on the way you've defined a factory in one place, right? Yep. And so that data is basically is actually global through your test suite. Yes. So that's sort of a that sort of sucks, right? It, it does. Yeah. It, it can definitely become painful, especially when you you change some attribute that you don't think should affect anything mm. and tests start breaking. Mm-hmm. So the idea is you want to declare these uh, factories and then segregate them so that something that's different is named differently. So for example, a user, you know, if you have an admin flag, mm-hmm. you would default it to false or I, how I would work is I would default the admin flag to false on user yep. and then assign it to true in a separate factory or in a trait. Okay. And then what that allows you to do then is only deal with regular users when you expect to get a regular user. And then if you want an admin user, you basically have to go out of your way to say, I want an admin user because at this point in time, I need to deal with this type of user. Mm-hmm. So splitting up your splitting up the, the data types helps ease some of the pain of the fact that they're global. Right. Because the only things using the admin factory are things that really want an admin. So mm-hmm. changes to admin are less likely to break right. uh, those tests. Yeah. And that's why I'm a huge proponent of declaring the most bare bones factory possible mm-hmm. in order for it to be valid. You know, because you always, your factories need to be valid by default. Right. When valid, factory ad, girl, valid in terms of active record validation. Yes. Yep. yep. So by default, factory girl will call save bang. Okay. On your instance when it's being created. And that will typically raise if it if it doesn't save. Sure. Right? Yep. So you want to make sure that the factories that you create are valid so that when you call create and then pass in the name of the factory, yep. it's going to actually persist the data. Mm-hmm. So the goal is declare the most bare bones factory possible and then either have child factories mm-hmm. that go through and subsequently assign different attributes that mutate the data in a certain manner yep or use traits in which you can you can mutate multiple columns you can change a handful of columns at a time or you can uh, add associations you can also add different callbacks so that helps you or that would help any developer really to go through and say you know i have this concept and I'm going to define this trait as a concept. So a common example that I that I use is um, like a flag on a post, right? You say, I want this post to be uh, published. So you start off and you say, oh, it's just a Boolean. Yes or no is a published, mm-hmm. right? And then requirements change. And now you need to know when you published that post, right? So instead of tracking a boolean you want a timestamp and then you can say it's not published if the timestamp is nil and it is published if it's if it's set right mm-hmm. 
and then requirements change again, and then there's a state machine. So it could be published, unpublished, draft, private, whatever. Right. Then it's going to change again. So instead of having the published at, you might have a timestamp and then a state column. However you end up modeling that, you know, that's obviously up to the developer. Okay. But this stuff can change. And a lot of times people will start out with a factory and they'll say, oh, I'm just going to do build, you know, post, published, true as an options hash because mm-hmm. factory supports options. The problem is if you use that in a handful of spots or publish true or publish false, it doesn't matter. The fact that you're putting that column in the factory URL call when you create this record ends up being a pain point because when you need to change published to published at, and now you're dealing with timestamps instead of booleans, then everything needs to change wherever you refer to published. All through your tests. All through your tests. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you use a trait? Whereas if you use a trait, you're just referring to this concept of this thing is published or this thing is not published. Okay. And then your tests don't necessarily care about how it's stored in the database. Mm-hmm. So we should probably clarify when a trait looks like in, in your factory file and how do you call it? Like just mm-hmm. what does that look like? So a trait, when you call it from, uh, when you call it from the factory, so you'll say create and then the factory name, and yep. that's always a symbol. And then it's a comma delimited list of traits that you want to add on to that factory. Okay. And those so, traits are then defined in your factory's file? Yes. Okay. Yep. And so I would have a trait like um, published or is published or something. And then mm-hmm. inside there I would say published true yep. in the, in the, at first, right? Yep. And so then I create a new a new post with the factory and I just pass in symbol published after the name of, of post. Yeah, exactly. And then later when we change the way we say a post is published, mm-hmm. you just change it in that trait in the factory file. Exactly. Gotcha. So this is this is a, a tool for basically eliminating duplication right. within your test suite. Yep. Okay, cool. That's 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 good. That seems to make sense. Because mm-hmm. um, you sort of have this fundamental, this global coupling is, is a, a bit of a pain point, right? Right. Um, and the thing I, I say when I'm, when I'm talking to people about this is that, yes, you have this global coupling, but I think the the solution to this, if you wanted to eliminate that coupling, it's, it's worse than the current pain because right. you'd have to scatter the way you build all your test mm. objects throughout your test suite. Right. So you have, a, you have some coupling here due to these global uh, fixture file or fixtures, mm-hmm. but the, 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 the solution is worse than the, the problem right. here. And the other thing to bring up too is you would still unit test published at, right? Or mm-hmm. whatever the column is. Yeah. Whenever you use a trait, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't unit test any of the columns on, you know, on your model or anything like that. Okay. So that's a, a, another – what I find to be a common misconception is, oh, if I'm using traits, I need to st- – I still want to care about the, the columns you know, on the record, right? Mm-hmm. And that's you – know, you should care about that. But when you're dealing with the concept of a published post, that's a lesser concern in my opinion. Okay. So it's okay – to abstract that concept of, oh, it's you know it's this this column and this type, you know, apart when you're dealing with, you know, the concept of of a published post. Mm. Cool. So, Factory Girl is a pretty popular project. Mm-hmm. Uh, gets a decent amount of issues and pull requests and things like that. Yep. How do you like being a, an open source maintainer? How is that? It's interesting. Uh, it's a lot of fun. You know, I, I strive to have zero pull requests, zero issues. Mm-hmm. Um, a, lot of awesome. the, a lot of the issues that we get on uh, on GitHub are s- small things, minor things. We get some feature requests, 
But a lot of times, you know, the issues don't really, they don't pile up too much because we're, you know, I'm constantly maintaining, I'm making sure that we answer people's questions and urging developers to go to the Google groups. That's a much better place to go through and ask factory girl related questions. Interesting. So is, but, that, is that mailing list pretty popular? I haven't actually yeah, seen that. Yep. Cool. Yeah, it's pretty great. There's a lot of, not a ton of activity, but there's, there's a fair amount of activity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people can go on there and answer, ask questions, answer questions that other developers are asking. Mm-hmm. There's a wealth, wealth of knowledge out there about Factory Girl. And, you know, if we can spread that knowledge, you know, other people have contributed to the project that have done awesome things with it. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's some really awesome blog posts that have been published pretty recently within the past month. Yep. Basically reiterating exactly what my goals are for what awesome features you should be using in Factory Girl. Nice. And we'll make sure we have a link to that in yep. the, the show notes for this. Definitely. Because uh, I agree that that a couple posts are really great. Mm-hmm. So what's what's not so good about maintaining? Uh, you get a lot of crazy ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, we've said over and over again that we aren't going to support any sort of identity map mm-hmm. or singleton factories. Mm-hmm. And we still get pushback. There's still a lot of people that, that are upset by that and still want to see it in Factory Girl proper. We're not going to get it in there, but I think it was Factory Girl 3.3, we released the ability for developers to specify their own build strategies. So a build strategy in Factory Girl is would be build versus create versus build stubbed versus attributes for. Okay. So basically it's a different workflow for how the object is instantiated, mm-hmm. how the attributes are assigned, and if we persist the record right. or if we don't touch it at all if we convert it to a hash in the case of attributes for hmm. okay. so with the ability to define custom strategies developers could effectively go and add that to their own projects but we definitely don't want to have any hand in that because yeah. you know we oppose it's funny how it, people will suggest things that they want to see you do, but mm-hmm. if you give them the tools to do it themselves, they often won't. Right. Like, it's not worth it for me to do it, but right. if you did it, then I yeah. would use it. Yeah. So uh, what makes for an awesome pull request? Tests, uh, an outline of the use case. Those are the two biggest things. Mm. Um, like why this feature is actually useful? Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of times it's it may only be useful in a certain context, but... You know, some of the best pull requests that we've had have been from users who have, you know, had a certain use case. They say, right. I'm experiencing pain here. Yep. And they outline it. And then either they have a solution already or they have an idea for a solution. If they have the solution, ideally it's fleshed out. There's some good documentation about how to use the new feature. And again, we want to see tests. Right. So. Uh, so here's a sort of more general question. Mm-hmm. So in the last, so you've been here three years. Mm-hmm. Since you have gotten here in the last couple of years, how has the code that you write changed? It has gotten better. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> um, basically, if your code isn't getting better week by week, you're probably doing something wrong. Right. I can look at code that I wrote two weeks ago and think this is total shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a constant evolution. And if you're not evolving, you're stagnant. And yeah. you don't want to be stagnant, especially in the programming community. Right. You'll fall, you know, you'll fall by the wayside. You'll be, you know, everybody's still continuing out and continuing to go and do these awesome projects, come up with crazy new ideas, you know, and if you're not doing that, if you're not uh, growing, 
as a developer, mm-hmm. you know, it's... So, so give, me, give me some uh, some examples, like code you wrote a couple, like a year ago versus today. Can you think of any like specific things that are different? Yeah, the stuff that I write now is a lot more uh, modular, organized, um, SRP. That's like a really big thing. So I've been focusing on building smaller objects that only do one thing, mm-hmm. and they do it well. SRP right? being? Uh, single responsibility principle. Okay. So the idea behind SRP is you have an object, it does one thing, it does it well, it doesn't care about anything else mm-hmm. in terms of what it should be doing. So if you're, if you have an object, a lot of times you say, you can ask yourself, what does this object do? Mm-hmm. And if you use the word and right. in that sentence, yeah. it's doing too much. Yeah, I've seen that. If you, if, if you have to use and or or in mm-hmm. your sentence description, yep. it's a bad sign. I also have heard this talked about in, in terms of um, how many reasons to change Right. Does this object have? And, right. and a single class should have one reason to change. Right. Not like because we change this or we change this. Mm-hmm. Then that's sort of the bad sign. Exactly. So you're writing you're writing smaller classes then? Mm-hmm. Classes that do a little bit less? Smaller classes. Yeah. Um, actually kind of weaning away from integration tests. Really? A little bit. Not too much. But, you know, integration tests, acceptance tests, they're slow, right? Mm-hmm. Especially with uh, JavaScript-heavy applications, you know, you get you get suites that take 10, 15, 20 minutes to run, even more. You know, one of the projects that I was on in the past year, year and a half, it took, let's see, there were 30 or so EC2 instances, and it took those 30 instances an hour Wow! to run a test suite. Paralyzed test suite? Yep. Yikes. And the reason why is because it was so JavaScript heavy. Huh. And everything was done, a lot of stuff was covered through integration tests. Okay. So, so what's your approach now? The approach or, now is to do still use, you know, still write the acceptance test, the integration test, make sure that the system works end to end, but don't tone it down a little bit and focus more on the unit tests. Okay. Um, so you're testing sort of happy path then with the integration test mostly? Mostly, yeah. And then we'll use for JavaScript testing, Jasmine is awesome. Okay. Uh, I love Jasmine, especially with uh, Evergreen. Yep. In Rails 3, you just wire everything up. You can write your Jasmine tests in CoffeeScript. Right. And, and it, it just looks works. like our spec. Yeah. Which is nice. It's insanely fast. Yeah. And you get to, you know, you get to to break everything down into smaller chunks and then test those individual components. And then, you know, when you do have your acceptance tests that cover a set of interactions with your application, you know, it's going to be a lot faster because you're not dealing with every single permutation. Right. Throughout yeah. the entire GUI. Yeah, I've had the same the same sort of, of move is like test a handful of situations with the acceptance test, and they're mostly there to make sure that things are wired together correctly. Yeah, exactly. And then, but sort of edge cases and you know lots of permutations, mm-hmm. keep them out of the acceptance tests, throw them in unit tests. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's definitely has led to some greater happiness for me too. Yeah, and definitely you know if a bug report comes in and there's an issue, I almost always will write an integration test first. Just mm-hmm. to make sure that I can reproduce the failure and then use the integrate the failure to drive, you know, how I solve the problem. Yeah. But the integration test, I will definitely write those first when there's when there's bug reports because that will tell you right away, hey, I can reproduce this issue. A lot of times that's the hardest thing to do is figure out what the user actually did in order to break something. Mm-hmm. And once you can figure that out, a lot of times the solution is pretty easy. Mm. All right, let's turn to some questions. So first question is from Brian Ricker, and he says, 
this isn't really a thought-about-related question. However, I'm making factories for my various objects in a Rails project. Should I be filling out each factory with every attribute, even the optional ones, or is it generally better to fill in only the required ones and pass in optional attributes as needed? Definitely the latter. Uh, I'd mentioned before that you really only want to declare factories as bare bones as we'll get them to validate so that they can be persisted to the database. Uh And then what you want to do is for the individual individual cases where you need to uh, provide any overrides, you would either inline that. Exactly. Yep. You would either inline it with the options hash that we allow developers to pass in or pass in a trait. Or okay. multiple traits okay. and allow you know the traits to mutate that data just a tiny bit to whatever you need it to be in order to be able to effectively test. The funny thing, the question continues, I find the former method hard to maintain but also allows me to be a little lazier when writing tests. Yeah. So he sort of answers his own question, right? Exactly. It's like the more data you put in the glo- effectively global test space, the mm-hmm. more pain you're going to have maintenance-wise. Yep. Yes, you can be a little lazier, but... He's sort of already feeling that pain. Right. So, Brian, I think you, I think you know the answer to that one. Mm-hmm. Your, and the, and your, the other, your initial laziness is going to hurt you in long-term laziness. Right. And the other thing I think that we should cover real quick is a lot of times you don't actually need to use Factory Girl to write some of your unit tests. Mm-hmm. I actually had a conversation with Steve Klabnik about this uh, a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And he his biggest complaint of Factory Girl, one of his big complaints of Factory Girl is – with an object, a lot of times for bigger systems, you have a lot of collaborators. You have a lot of associations and, and all this other stuff that you don't necessarily need in order to write your unit tests. And I wholeheartedly agree. If you're writing unit tests and the data doesn't need any associations, it doesn't need to be persisted because you don't care about the callbacks being run or anything, don't use Factory Girl. Or if you do, use Build Stubbed. Build Stubbed is one of the strategies that we provide. And what does that do? It basically it instantiates the record. Uh, goes through and assigns all the attributes, gives it an ID, and it raises if you try and interact with the database at all. Mm. Okay. So what that does is it gives you fake data that looks like it's been persisted so that if you're you know doing view testing, you want to test a form or something like that, you can use build stubbed. But it will go through and give you basically a full-fledged object that looks like it's been saved, mm. but it hasn't, and then it raises if you interact with the and database. And that will be way faster. Right? It's going to be a lot faster because – it and its associations, none of it hits the database at all. Mm-hmm. And it didn't have to get saved at all. Right. Cool. Okay, good. Uh, next question is from Josh Kleina. He says, I wanted to prick your bra- pick your brains regarding TDD. I had originally learned TDD from watching a few of Ryan Bates' screencasts. After doing so, I went ahead and emulated what I learned in my own apps. However, as I began to dig a bit deeper and read more, I learned that I was, I was writing a test suite that was heavily dependent on integration tests. As my apps continued to grow, my tests started to take longer and longer, and I began to notice my tests were overlapping their coverage. Then I stumbled onto J.B. Rainsberger's Integration Tests Are a Scam talk. That's a good link bait title. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which suggests you should focus more on small unit tests and not bother so much with integration tests. I was wondering what your thoughts were on this. Should we focus more on unit testing and keep integration tests to a minimum or even get rid of them completely? We kind of touched on this earlier. Right. Uh, So go ahead. Yeah. So get rid of, getting rid of them completely, I think, is a really bad idea. I think about it this way. Me as a programmer, I am not necessarily interacting with my application. My users are not interacting with the application from – usually they're not interacting with it from the command line. Yeah. Right? If it's a web application, a lot of times you're either hitting an API or actually using a web browser to interact with, with the site. 
unit tests are not going to give you that that full coverage of what a user is doing on your site. Mm -hmm. So you can unit test all day long. And yes, your models may be perfect and everything might be organized very well. But at the end of the day, that doesn't mean these tests can't confirm that your application is actually working. Right. And if it can't confirm that your application is actually working, I mean, what's the, yeah. you know, what's the point? Why do you have these tests? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was, that, that was sort of what led me to integration tests in the first place. Mm -hmm. was like the test read is green and the app is broken. Right. So something is wrong. Exactly. Yeah, and, and so as we mentioned earlier, we're leaning towards sort of using integration tests somewhat sparingly right. as confirmation of that the big pieces are plugged together, mm -hmm. um, but leaning more heavily on unit tests for the same reason that Josh has mentioned, which is, or this Josh has mentioned, which is that the integration tests are slower. Yep, exactly. And I also tend, I think they are probably a little harder to maintain than individual unit tests because mm -hmm. they sort of are coupled to more pieces of the system. Because exactly. You're, you're exercising more at the same time. So the next question is from Kevin Beam, and he says... I've been working with Rails for one year and still struggling to find my BDD and TDD groove. Right now, I'm just using RSpec like this. I create a request example, which is an acceptance or integration test. I create examples to flush out the behavior and then wash, rinse, and repeat. However, I find, up, I find that I end up with only request and model examples and no controller or view examples, since the request examples sort of cover those. Certainly no helper or route examples. What am I doing wrong? I don't know if you're necessarily doing anything wrong, Kevin. It's, you know, it's each developer, you know, can go about and write their tests in a certain manner. A lot of times we don't often write controller specs or view specs. Mm -hmm. That said, if there is complicated logic, especially in helpers, you know, you're going to want to write tests for those. You'll thank yourself later on. Mm -hmm. A lot of times what we try and do is move this complex behavior outside of controllers and into models or hopefully other objects that are dealing with these sort of interactions, dealing with any complexity, because that's a heck of a lot easier to unit test than controllers are. Mm. So I can understand not wanting to write or not ending up writing a lot of controller review specs because most of the time there's not a lot, a lot of logic in there anyways. Mm. And if there is you know, you'll probably want to move it. Yeah. Yeah, I totally would agree with that. Like, I, I, it's very rare for me to write a controller spec. It's basically unheard of for me to write a view spec. Same with goes with route, uh, route specs. Mm -hmm. Helpers occasionally, like you said, if they're complicated. Right. Um, I, I've, been, I've been getting more comfortable with allowing integration test coverage to stand in for, uh, for certain unit test coverage. Right. Like, if you read an integration test and a controller spec they really are super overlapped. Right. So you've basically duplicated that test and sort of for no additional gain. So yeah, I, 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 I kept, Kevin, you're not doing anything wrong. That's, that's pretty much how we do it here. Mm -hmm. I think our, our controller specs are almost empty or virtually empty all the time. Yeah. Occasionally there's something that's easier to test that way, like uh, authentication or something like that. Mm -hmm. Next question is from Tice DeVries. That's my best guess at that name. Uh, hello, what process do you guys have for upgrading from one version of Rails to another? When you start new applications, do you generally start on the latest and greatest, or do you give new versions of Rails a vetting process in which you determine whether they work? Do you, make, uh, do you ever make the decision that an application isn't worth upgraded and keep it on an older version? So the first part of that question is, you know, do we run the latest and greatest? Yeah. And the answer is yes, as often as we can. And the reason why is because you're up to date on patch levels. If there's any security fixes or anything like that, 
And a lot of times, I mean, Rails has been around for years and years and years. It's to a point where if it gets released, it's probably pretty damn stable. Right. So it's not really a matter of concerning, or it's not a matter of, are we concerned with it breaking you know, the, the existing application? And a lot of times, unless you're upgrading uh, a minor or a major release version of Rails, you probably shouldn't have too many issues anyways. Right. Yeah, and I've noticed it, when there is an issue with uh, something being uh, a release being cut, it's fixed really fast, and it, it tends to be a very minor upgrade mm-hmm. as as an end developer. Yep. So the next part of the question was, um, so we don't have a vetting process; we just go for the latest. Um, and do we do we ever make a decision that an application isn't worth upgrading and keep it on an older version? Yes, and the reason why I mean there is there is a cost to every bit of software that we write. Mm-hmm. So if an upgrade is going to take uh, two developers one month to do, where I've been, I've been in that situation where upgrading from Rails 2 to Rails 3 with a pretty sizable application using Mongoid, that upgrade took literally one month with mm. two developers Brutal. just hacking on it. And the reason why is because Mongoid changed to use everything, a handful of pieces from Active Model. Mm-hmm. So... Upgrading, we had to upgrade Mongoid, Rails, and then all of our test frameworks. So our spec had to get updated. Um, Cucumber, Capybara. I think we switched. At that point, we also switched from WebRat to Capybara. It was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. Was it worth it? I think so, yeah. Um, and, you know, we had the resources to be able to do so. But mm-hmm. there, are definitely, there are definitely projects out there where it may not make a lot of sense. Totally. If the app is running fine and, you know, the upgrade, for example, from Rails 2 to Rails 3 isn't going to benefit your application very much if you're not going to take advantage of the asset pipeline, for example, or you don't have a whole lot of uh, – you're not dealing with a lot of the active record intricacies that – you know, kind of get ironed out uh, during the active model upgrade and then the active relation stuff. Mm-hmm. Or, or if you're planning on adding, like, no new functionality, like it's yeah. just kind of sitting there. Yep. yep. Then, it, it, then it doesn't necessarily make sense. Mm-hmm. One thing that you do want to remember is hopefully there are acceptance, te- acceptance tests to make sure that when you do upgrade, you don't have to go and hit every single corner of the application because you have tests to make sure that it still works for the, for the users. Yeah, if there are people still writing apps with no tests in there, an upgrade is going to be such a different process for you, and it, 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 I would consider it almost too risky yeah. if you don't have a test suite in place. I agree. Next question is from Wotech. He says, Hi, guys. I have a few simple questions, mostly about your test workflow. First one is, how do you test complex GUI logic? Capybara's execute script seems way too hacky and cumbersome when you have a lot of JS interactions. I'm going to grab that part first. Yep. So you really don't want to use execute script too often. And the reason why is because users are not going to be digging into your JavaScript and executing JavaScript via a console, right? right? They're going to be interacting with the page and triggering events and doing all that stuff. Yeah. With JavaScript drivers, if you click on something, it's going to trigger all the events and do everything like you would expect. So you shouldn't be digging into execute script too often. If you are, I think that's a pretty good sign that you probably want a unit test using Jasmine or whatever you want to use, QUnit, to go through and test the individual behaviors of a specific component and then leave the interaction test to, uh, you know, Cucumber or whatever, you know, Capybara if you want to. So when we have complex GUIs, we will typically test that with Cucumber with a JavaScript driver. 
Right, and not use execute script. Right. Execute script I found is really only useful if you need to dig into the nitty gritty of the page. Mm-hmm. And most times you don't need to do that. And if you are, that's usually a sign that you want a unit test instead of an integration test. Okay. Next part of his question was, what kind of things don't you test at all? Don't I test at all? I definitely, I don't know. I mean, everything ends up getting tested. Right. I've definitely found that there's stuff that's a real pain in the butt to test. Um, the biggest things that I've dealt with recently are uh, app manifests and offline caching. Mm. I have I had spent weeks trying to figure out what the best way or if there was a way to test this stuff. And I'm pretty certain there's not a good way to do it. Okay. Um, the JavaScript the JavaScript drivers are just not there yet. Um, you know, digging through the Selenium web driver gem, you know, there's ways to interact with, for example, local storage and, and all that kind of stuff, but it's just not it's not there yet. So it's it's you know, it's almost not worth testing. Uh, and we also sort of mentioned earlier, controller specs, pretty rare for us. Right. View specs, even rare. Right. Route specs, never. Right. The only time I would test a route is if I'm dealing with an API or providing some specific endpoints, you know, if I want to cover it for SEO purposes or something, if I want to make sure that, for example, a search with a tag shows up in the route in a specific manner. Okay. Cool. Uh, last part is, what about code that has a good chance to be changing a lot? Are you relaxed with TDDing it because it will dramatically increase time needed to manage changes? That is actually a symptom of bad code, I would say. Mm. Or not bad code, but code that probably needs to be reworked. So if code is changing a lot, it's probably doing too much. And there's probably other objects that can be handling some of the stuff that it's doing. Mm. For example, if you want to tack on behavior to a user, you don't necessarily need to add it to that user class. Okay. Right, You can create another object that gets instantiated with the user, move all the methods there, and then use composition on the user to be able to access this information or you know, do whatever it needs to do to get at it without actually adding any methods directly on the user. Mm-hmm. So that means additional behavior is in one object. It's separate. It's easier to test because you can deal with – you can instantiate it with a stub mm-hmm. instead of relying on the user instance itself. And it's not going to introduce more churn onto the user model. Mm. And, and, and the, the part of his question says, are you relaxed with TDDing it because it will increase time needed to manage changes? And, and no, I wouldn't say we do that. Mm-mm. Like, we build things with TDD because it tends to lead to things that are better designed. And so if we relaxed on TDD, the components we ended up with would actually be harder to change, right. in my experience. And we would have less confidence making those changes because of the lack of test coverage. Mm-hmm. So it's almost exactly the opposite. The things that I think are going to change a lot, I want to be damn sure, have really good test coverage right. and have been driven with a test so that they end up modular and sort of able to function without context around them. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be speaking at a conference pretty soon. Yep. So Lone Star Ruby is August 9th through 11th. Uh-huh. And I'll be giving a talk there uh, called Metaprogramming in the Wild. And I'm going to be talking about Factory Girl. And basically, we're going to source, source dive Factory Girl, dig through and uh, touch on some of the metaprogramming that we do in there mm-hmm. and its uses in the real world, um, You know, helping out testing and a handful, a handful of other ways that we can use metaprogramming to make uh, Rails applications and Ruby in general 
a lot more fun to work with. Nice. So sort of live source diving, you're going to be opening up real factory go code and going through it? Exactly. Awesome. Love those kind of talks. So what was the date again on that? August 9th through 11th. And that's in? It's in Austin, Texas. Awesome. So maybe consider checking that out. Austin's a great place, by the way. I spent a week there uh, back when RailsConf happened in such a cool city. Yeah, it's a blast. Yeah, cool. Well, have fun. Thanks. So if folks wanted to uh, get in touch with uh, either me or Josh, uh, uh, Twitter is a really good way to do that. On Twitter, I'm Rook, R-0-0-K, and Josh, you are? Joshua Clayton. Uh, Thanks for sitting down and chatting with me. It's been fun. Thanks, man. Yeah.